Welcome to eBible Fellowship's Sunday Bible Study. For broadcast times in your area of these studies, visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com. And now it's time to begin our Sunday study with your speaker, Chris McCann. Hello and welcome to eBible Fellowship Sunday Afternoon Bible Study. Today is study number 11 of Daniel chapter 2. And we're continuing to look at verses 34 and 35 to start with. It says in Daniel 2, verse 34, Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together, and become like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. In our last study, we were looking at verse 35 and uh, the place where it says that the image was broken to pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. And we saw when we look up the word chaff and wind carrying the chaff away, that it ties in with judgment day, with God's wrath as as God destroys the wicked. And it also relates to God's use of his people in the day of judgment as a threshing instrument and um, the Lord utilizes the people of God to fan the wicked, the chaff that the the wind will take or the spirit will take it away. That's because the fan is in Christ's hand or God's elect or in the will of the Lord. And as the Bible opens up information, it reveals the will of God and the true believers, the elect, are obedient, and they declare these things. And that's how the children of God are involved in the judgment process, which is pictured in various ways, and in this case, as a threshing instrument or as a fan regarding the portion of harvest that is no good, the, the unsaved, they're not God's fruit. So they're driven away. And so God's people are pictured as in service to the Lord in his harvest concerning the driving away of the chaff. But it, we're also pictured in Revelation chapter 16 as the ones pouring out the vials, the seven last vials full of the wrath of God. We participate in the judgment it's why 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Know ye not that the saints will judge the world. And, and that's exactly what's going on at this time. Even while we ourselves make an appearance before the judgment seat of Christ, we're being tried and tested, yet simultaneously, we are involved in the outpouring of the wrath of God upon the unsaved people of the earth. 
as we just simply declare what the Bible says. That's what God's people do in every generation, in in every time and season. They declare what the Bible says, and according to what God has opened up or what he has shut, well, that's the gospel that they bring. And at this time, God has shut the door to heaven. The Lord's people declare it, which effectively is pouring out wrath upon the unsaved inhabitants of the earth. Well, it goes on to say in verse 35, after speaking of the wind carrying them away, it goes on to say that no place was found for them. And that's significant language because it ties in with what we read in Revelation 6 that is also describing Judgment Day in verse 12. It says of Revelation chapter 6, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. The darkening of the sun pinpoints the time. We know that Revelation 6 in this scripture and what follows will be describing the events after the tribulation because immediately after the tribulation the sun was darkened. And the events after the tribulation are judgment day. So it goes on to say in verse 13, And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And that wind would relate to the wind carrying away the chaff in Daniel. But it goes on to say in verse 14, And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. That's similar to what it says here. No place was found for them. And also, it's similar to Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. No place for them. Uh, it, it indicates there is nowhere in the world for man to hide any longer. They, they have no refuge of any kind. Uh, their their uh, sins are naked and open unto the eyes of the one with whom they have to do eternal God. They, they also are about to lose their inheritance the creation that God created and placed man upon to have dominion over this creation and uh, became the inheritance of the wicked. And, and as they lived out their lives, this is all the inheritance they're going to get. They are not born again. They, they have not received the eternal inheritance of the saints of God. And... Therefore, when the final judgment is complete, when God, in the last act regarding 
uh, this sin-cursed creation and the rebellious sinners that have inhabited it, once that's complete, the earth and the heavens will be literally destroyed. They'll be gone forever and there'll be no place for the wicked. And Isaiah 51 tells us when that happens that the unsaved person himself or herself will be destroyed in a similar way. In Isaiah 51, verse 6, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath. For the heaven shall vanish away like smoke and the earth shall wax old like a garment and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. That is what happens to the earth and the heavens, the creation, will happen to they that dwell therein, to the inhabitants of the earth. They will die or perish in like manner. They are going to die in a similar way as the heavens and the earth will die. And how are the heavens and the earth going to die? When God destroys this creation with fire, with a fervent heat, are the elements that make up the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars and, and the whole universe, are they going to burn and burn and burn and burn forever and ever and ever? No. No, nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that the creation, once God destroys it, will continue indefinitely in some kind of fire. There's an understanding there because it doesn't involve people. And the church has not contaminated that idea or doctrine as it has contaminated the destruction of man at the end of the world. And, and so it's understood. Well, God will burn up the world, burn up the animals, the trees, the rocks, the seas, the entire creation, and everything outside in the universe, outside of the earth, and, and he'll burn it with a fervent heat, and it will burn up and be gone forever. And, well, where'd it go? It's, it's just annihilated. It will cease to exist. That's what God or what the Bible teaches concerning the destruction of the cursed creation. And we all understand it. The the cats are not going to suffer the uh, ongoing forever, nor the dogs, nor the cows, nor the horses, nor any of the creatures that God created that were cursed due to the curse placed upon the uh, whole creation, they will die and perish and cease to be. Now, now, actually, everyone understands annihilation, don't we? When we recognize it too. Yes, of course, that will be the end. That's what it means. Notice, again, let me... Let me read that again in Isaiah 51. God is speaking of the creation. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath. 
For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. That is, God is teaching us about death, what it means to die. The the creation will die, and animals die, and all the, the many creatures die. And with every one of them, with, with the many thousands and thousands of types and and kinds and and species uh, the the fishes and the elephants and and the birds of the air and and all these animals and the and the insects and uh, the microscopic creatures and, and and so forth with all living things on the earth they die and we all understand that's the end of them that's the end of them they're gone they they just are no more and that's what god is saying here the creation will die at the end when god destroys the whole thing and it will be no more it's going to um uh, what, what do you say the the heavens shall vanish away like smoke because it's god's intention to burn them with that fervent heat and then smoke is seen for a bit and then it dissipates and and it goes off and it's gone and man or they that dwell therein shall die in like manner including mankind man dies and he is no more that's what it means in the bible when it says the wages of sin is death we die if we're unsaved and we cease to be. In that very day, our thoughts perish. To perish means you're gone. God helps us to understand what it means to perish in the book of Job. In Job chapter 20, it says in verse 4, I'll start reading there, Knowest thou not this of old since man was placed upon earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment, though his excellency mount up to the heavens and his head reach unto the clouds, yet he shall perish forever like his own dung. They which have seen him shall say, Where is he? He shall fly away as a dream and shall not be found. Yea, he shall be chased away as a vision of the night. The eye also which saw him shall see him no more, neither shall his place any more behold him. You, you see how God is relating man's perishing, the wicked's perishing forever. It's an eternal consequence. It's an eternal thing that will happen to man. He will perish forever. But in order that we understand what that means... The Lord draws the equation like his own dung. And, and, and of course, we know that the waste that comes out of people, it, it goes into the ground and it is gone. It, man will perish forever like his dung. 
It's not an eternal suffering in a place called hell, being whipped by a merciless God forever and ever and ever. No, the Bible teaches, actually, that God is a God that must obey his own law, and the law of God indicates there must be a limit set to punishment. You can read that in Deuteronomy 25, the first few verses, and you you cannot uh, just punish someone without limit, and that's what eternal punishment is, That that is contrary to the law of God. So God will set a limit to punishment, and that's where we find ourselves today in the time of judgment. It is the meeting out of the stripes of the wrath of God, and there will be a limit. The stripes will not exceed a certain point, and then God will destroy the wicked. He will annihilate them forever. Man will be, as as Job says, he'll fly away as a dream and not be found. He's gone like that dream. The dream has no substance. It, it has no material being. It is something that you cannot grab a hold of. That will be the death of the wicked. They will not be found and their place will be no more. And that's what is being said here in Daniel 2. Okay, let's go back to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 35, the end of the verse, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, we know, um, due to the interpretation of the dream, in the verses that follow here in Daniel 2. What the stone that smote the image represents, the great mountain represents the kingdom of God. And and so let's read the interpretation. Uh, there's no sense us struggling with understanding when God has provided his own interpretation. It would be like Jesus who would speak a parable and then explain the parable to the disciples. There's a little little cause for us to try and interpret various things at a parable when Christ goes on on occasion to explain what it actually meant. So in Daniel 2, verse 44, it says in explanation of the stone that smote the image and became a great mountain and filled the whole earth, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. All the kingdoms of the earth are eventually destroyed. Or the king dies and leaves his kingdom to others. And Solomon even was moved to write about that. You don't know if the one you're leaving it to it is a wise man or a fool. And, and, and that was one of his causes to write that all is vanity. So 
the earthly kingdoms of the world are all wanting. They, they all lack because they are not continuous kingdoms. They, they are kingdoms that endure for a time. All earthly kingdoms are this way and history proves it when we look back and we see the glory of uh, the pharaohs that ruled thousands of years ago and yet their kingdom came to an end. Or we see the glory of Rome and the Caesars and yet their kingdom has come to an end. Or as we read in the Bible about the Assyrians and their king or the Babylonians and, and their period of rule when they ruled over the earth and yet their kingdom came to an end and then the Medes and the Persians rise up and conquered Babylon and they were the mighty power yet the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians came to an end it's always the case in this world with earthly kingdoms eventually they fall eventually they come to an end and It's the same way with Satan's kingdom, with the kingdom of Satan, with which ultimately that image is pointing to. It's pointing to the power and rule and authority of Satan. And Satan's earthly kingdom, of course, has lasted much longer than than uh, these other kingdoms ruled by men because he's a spirit being. And from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, when he deceived man, Adam and Eve, to eat of the forbidden fruit, and therefore man became submissive to him and rebelled against God, well, then he became the ruler by right of conquest over man. And he has ruled in the kingdom of darkness. And all the world's kingdoms really are a part of it. Uh, Remember when he was tempting the Lord Jesus, he showed him all the kingdoms of the earth as in a moment of time. And he, he, he said, all this will I give you to the Lord Jesus if you only bow down and worship me. And yes, Satan's a liar, but he mixes truth with lies. And it was a fact that he rules over the earth. He rules over the kingdoms of the earth. And he has his own spiritual rule that even as earthly kingdoms rise and fall, Satan's rule continued. If there was any consistent rule outside of the kingdom of heaven and and God, we would have to say it was Satan's rule over the many thousand years of the history of the world as as he ruled over many kingdoms. In Revelation 17, remember how Satan's rule is described. In Revelation 17, it says in verse 9, And here is the mind which has wisdom, The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. There are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. These verses are describing Satan's rule, and it's looking at the 11,000 year 
period leading up to the coming of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, as though five kings or five kingdoms reigned over the course of Old Testament history. Then it says five are fallen and one is because when Christ went to the cross, Satan's kingdom suffered a blow, a death blow that really characterized the nature of his reign over the course of the church age, which is likened to a thousand years of his binding. So one rule, that would be the sixth king or the sixth kingdom, presently was at the writing of the book of Revelation by the end of the first century. And that rule would continue all the way until the end of the church age in the year 1988, the thousand-year binding of Satan, and then he would be loose for a little season. And that's what matches up with um, Revelation 17.10, the second part of the verse, the, the other is not yet come, and when he cometh, he must continue a short space. He's loosed for the great tribulation period, a little season, a short space. And that's the seventh and final king and kingdom of Satan. And it's the most glorious. It, it's the most tremendous. He uh, has power like never before. He rules over the nations that are populated by the billions. He rules over the corporate church entire for the first time. And all the unsaved inhabitants of the earth are worshiping him and and glorifying Satan like never before in history. And, and so at that time, it even seems that he's ruling stronger and greater than ever before in history, and, and it is the case. And it might appear, well, he's invincible. It, it might appear that his kingdom is without end, that his kingdom will go on and on and on, that it will never come to a close. He's been ruling for thousands and thousands of years, and finally, in our time, or in the time of the Great Tribulation, it became just an all-encompassing rule in, in every area, even the place of refuge for the people of God, the corporate church, was overcome, and and he began to take his seat in the temple, showing himself that he is God and so forth, and very disheartening, very uh, grievous situation for the people of God, and yet God is making a point here with the destruction of the image of the beast, it is also a destruction of the kingdoms, the kingdoms of Satan. Notice Daniel 2, verse 38. Thou art this head of gold. Then verse 39. And after thee shall arise another kingdom. That means that uh, the king of Babylon, the head of gold, was a kingdom himself. And then after him, another kingdom, a second inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule 
over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. For as much as iron breaketh in pieces, and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings, you see how God is relating the image and the various uh, portions of the image. It's different elements and metals, God is relating it to kings or kingdoms. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. So Satan, of course, is just one being and, and one evil king, yet God typified him as seven kings in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 17. And here it's as though that evil kingdom has four kings or four kingdoms. And I think we have to just understand it, that the number four is pointing to the the worldwide or universal aspect of the reign of Satan at the time of the end. It it comes up, actually, um, a couple of other times in the book of Daniel, that is the, the four. If we go to Daniel 7... It says in verse 3, And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. And verse 17, it says, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. And then we read that these great beasts overcame the saints. It's similar language. Also in Daniel chapter 8, it says in verse 8, Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And then again, an explanation of this, it says in verse 20, The ram which thou sawest having two horns of the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. So again, there are different visions that, that Daniel is receiving concerning four beasts, four notable horns, or in the case of the image, four 
different kinds of, of building material, and yet, in each case, it's said to represent four kingdoms, which is different, again, than Revelation 17, that speaks of seven mountains, seven kings, seven kingdoms. And as far as I can tell, the book of Revelation, which gives us a lot of information about Satan's rule, does not mention four kingdoms. And so I think the number four, uh, we, we should look for the spiritual meaning of the number four, which is universal. What it is being described by the four kingdoms has to do with Satan's rule over the entire world like never before in all the history of the earth. But again, we see that the stone that smote the image became a great mountain. And and God tells us in verse 44, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. It's really wonderful language. It's language that fits with God's salvation program. When the Bible speaks of those that God saves receiving eternal life. And, and we can see that here because we know that all that become part of God's kingdom receive eternal life. And, and therefore it's a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. That is, the elect are not going to die and leave it to someone else, and you don't know if they're a fool or wise. No. But it, this kingdom of God, will break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. That is, the kingdoms of Satan. Satan is not invincible. Satan is not someone or a being that cannot be overcome. It it may have appeared that way because God was using him. God is the one that has, um, through his permissive will, allowed Satan to rule to the degree that he did over the world and over the church during these end-time days of the Great Tribulation for that 23-year period to accomplish God's own perfect will. It is not that Satan is so powerful and strong, but it is only that God loosed him. And even in that, when we read that he must be loosed for a little season, well, you can see who had him in prison. God did. And who opened the prison to release him? God did. It's all done by the action and will of God to accomplish the purpose of God. And then he did accomplish that purpose. And on May 21, 2011, at the 8400th day, the exact 23rd year, God brought judgment on Satan and his kingdom. It is not a light thing or a little thing that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has deposed Satan. 
and put him down from all official rule. The rule that was recently given him over the churches, yes, over that 23-year Great Tribulation period, yes, that was recent. But also the rule that Satan won way back in the Garden of Eden over the nations, over the kingdoms of the earth, over Babylon. Eternal God, in the Day of Judgment, defeated Satan and took the kingdom from him and, in effect, destroyed all of his periods of rule, all of his kingdoms, all the spears of his influence, wherever he was ruling with authority, God put him down. And it was a lethal blow, a horrible blow. We can't know, we can't understand just how terrible a blow that was to Satan because it struck him right where he he has a soft spot, his weakness in his pride, in his arrogance, in his desire to be like God, to rule over man, to rule over the church, because that's where God ruled. Whatever God created and ruled as God created the world, Satan wanted it. And, and then when God took a, a little segment of the population and, and created Israel, Satan went after that. And, and then when God established churches as a place of refuge for hearing the word of God out of the world, and God said he was in the midst of the congregations, Satan went after them with all that he was worth. He, he went after them no end. Because it is his great desire to be like God. He wants to rule. He wants to have worship and people bow down to him and serve him. And God struck him right where it hurts and, and said, now the, the great tribulation is over. The judgment on the churches, which I raised you up to accomplish, has been completed. So remove yourself from the corporate body. You are no longer my servant. You are no longer ruling in the churches. But the Lord Jesus Christ will rule with a rod of iron. He will rule, and and not for their benefit, but he has taken the kingdom and and all we have to do is read about king cyrus king of the medes and the persians darius he was also known as and after the 70 years was completed not not a year later or a moment later but immediately after the 70 years was completed according to the prophecy of jeremiah the prophet then cyrus came in the night, and took the kingdom of Babylon, and and they were caught by surprise. And the whole kingdom of Babylon became Cyrus's. Let's um, listen to the language in the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 1, 
in verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of Jehovah by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, Jehovah stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And, and keep in mind, the book of Isaiah refers to Cyrus as God's anointed. It's the word Messiah. And, and, and very clearly, it relates Cyrus to Christ. So here, Jehovah stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, Jehovah God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. How many kingdoms of the earth was Cyrus given by God? All the kingdoms of the earth. He rules over all that the king of Babylon previously ruled over. Not only that, it says in Ezra chapter 5, in verse 13, but in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, the same king Cyrus made a decree to build this house of God. Cyrus took the title of the king of Babylon because he conquered the kingdom. And you can read about it in Daniel chapter 5. Cyrus is coming at night catching the Babylonian king and all of his princes having a party, uh, uh, like, of course, typify Christ coming as a thief in the night. And it happened after 70 years, just as that 70-year period typified the Great Tribulation, and immediately after the Tribulation, and the Tribulation ended May 21, 2011, Christ came as a thief in the night and took all the kingdoms of the earth. He took everything that Satan previously ruled over. Christ has now rule and authority over all the nations and the church. He, the Lord Jesus, is the king of Babylon, the king of the nations of the world. Jesus is ruling presently. He He's ruling at this time. If we go to Revelation chapter 11, um, we've looked at this in the past, but it mentions three woes, and the three woes identify with the last three trumpets. And the first four trumpets, which sounded in Revelation chapter 8, brought judgment on the corporate body. The third part came under the wrath of God, the churches. Then the final three trumpets identify with the last three woes. They bring judgment on the inhabitants of the earth. And so it says here in Revelation 11, in verse 14, the second woe is past, and behold, the third woe cometh quickly. That is, the fifth and the sixth trumpet is said to be passed, and the third woe, the seventh trumpet, coming quickly. And then in verse 15, And the seventh angel sounded the third woe. 
and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now that, of course, is a true statement of the Lord Jesus. He will reign forever and ever over the kingdoms of this world, however, Christ is not going to reign forever and ever. It, it, no, he will reign to ever and ever. It, it's the same idea with the language of uh, those that are tormented day and night forever and ever. To ever and ever. To the point of eternity. And, and so, too, here the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign too, ever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. Now, since the nations are angry... That, it, that indicates that they're still alive. They're, they're existing. That they have not been destroyed as yet. And, and that fits in with all the other information we've learned about God's judgment program. He begins with a spiritual judgment beginning on May 21, 2011. It continues for a prolonged period of time and then at the conclusion of that prolonged period of time comes the literal physical destruction of the universe and of the unsaved, a complete annihilation of the wicked and everything that's been tainted by sin. And then a a new heavens and a new earth is created. So this is the time of God's wrath, the time of the dead that they should be judged. The Bible speaks of Christ making an appearance and judging the quick and the dead, but here it only mentions the dead, the unsaved. The quick, the living, are referred to, but they're referred to um, in, in the second part of the verse, after it says the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets. Now, it almost sounds like that when Judgment Day comes, the time of judgment is for the dead, the the unsaved, that's what that means, the spiritually dead, as well as they could be physically dead, and they're judged, but it also, it, it makes it sounds like there's no judging of the quick, the living, the elect of God. Instead, they receive reward. And we we know what the reward is it it says in Luke chapter 6 and this is repeated a couple of times in the gospels Luke 6 verse 23 rejoice ye in that day 
and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. So the reward is in heaven. It's eternal life. That's the reward that is in view. The word reward is helpful because it's um, 3408 in the concordance, in the Greek concordance. And it's the same word that's translated as higher in Matthew chapter 20, where it speaks of the laborers in verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. The word hire is the word same word as reward. It's the word down in verse 8. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, their reward, beginning from the last unto the first. And we've gone over this parable and we've seen that the 12-hour workday identifies with the day of salvation, especially that last hour that is set apart and the um, the householder operates differently for that last hour than he did the rest of the day when he hires that last group. From the 11th to the 12th hour typifies the hour of great tribulation. Then the 12 hours complete, the day of salvation is over, comes even or night, and it's the time when the reward is given to the laborers. Now, Job, the book of Job tells us in in Job 14 some interesting things. Of course, the whole book is interesting, but in Job 14... Verse 5, it says, Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee, thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. And, and here is speaking of men. His, his days are determined, the number of his months. It, it's the bounds of his life or existence in this world. And then God joins it in the next verse with, with a hireling. It says in verse 6, Turn from him, that he may rest till he shall accomplish as a hireling his day. Now, we never would have understood that before, but now we can. The householder hires laborers. They're hirelings. They go into the vineyard. They work 12 hours. Then the hireling accomplishes his day, the day of salvation. That is the bounds in one sense, because following comes time to give reward, the hire, to the hireling. It, it's judgment day. It, it's the time of the evening or the night when immediately after the tribulation, the sun is darkened and the moon does not give its light and so forth. It, it's the time when the wrath of God is poured out upon the wicked and the time to pay the hireling. Well, then we're wrong about the elect appearing before the judgment seat of Christ and all those other scriptures that say the elect are on the earth going through the judgment. No, no, we're not wrong. Because the same word reward of Revelation 11 and Matthew 20 
is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, it says in verse 8, Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward. That's our word. According to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. You're God's husbandry. You're God's building. And then it says in verse 11, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. And there's that same Greek word again, 3408 in Strong's Concordance. And do you see the amazing thing that that God just told us? First, he tells us in Revelation 11, when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord, and we can tie that into the end of the tribulation into the book of Ezra when Cyrus takes Babylon and so forth, and and then it is judgment. It's the time of his wrath, the time that the dead should be judged, and the time that God gives reward unto the servants. However, what has to happen before you give the reward? As it says, let me read it again in 1 Corinthians 3.14. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Abide what? The previous verse speaks of fire that will try every man's work. If you abide the fire, then you get your reward. In other words, you you don't get the reward before you've been put through the fire. Uh, It's actually pretty clear. I might not be explaining it very clearly, but in order to get the reward you first must go through the fire to see what kind of work you are, and then once you've been proved, you receive the reward. Which can only mean that in Revelation eleven fifteen, when the dead are being judged, that's the fire. The Bible everywhere likens judgment day to fire and wrath, the uh, burning fury of God. And it is the elect that must go through the fire, and once they have abided or endured to the end of the fire, the end of the judgment upon the wicked, they receive the reward. You see how all that fits together, and then all the other scriptures that yes, we have to make an appearance. We must be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. It all comes together and ties together very nicely, including this verse in Revelation 22. 
In verse 10, And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. And we properly understand that to mean God has established everyone's spiritual condition. Salvation is done with. The saved are saved, the unsaved are unsaved. Then it says in verse 12, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. Isn't that eerily similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 3? Christ comes quickly to give the reward. But we've discussed this before. When the Bible speaks of coming quickly or or something that seems almost instantaneously, it means in the next available instant according to the will of God or according to God's timetable of things. He cannot give the reward at this point because the fire is still being applied. But once the fire has been completed at the first available instant, he will come quickly to his servants, the prophets, to give them reward. Thanks for joining us for eBible Fellowship Sunday Bible Study. For more information or to hear additional Bible studies, be sure to visit our website at www.ebiblefellowship.com.